This time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Gone! Gone! Hello, everybody. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci fi critique review random tangent show my name is yeah. gepwin and i am joined as always by my good friend dr Izix. hi yes this week uh, as you may have guessed it's the first appearance of khan into the, the star trek canon and uh you know i i needed to be sufficiently uh, uh sufficiently enthusiastic about it so yes <laughs> this is an episode weirdly named space seed yes due to a awkward reference they wanted to make at the end and for mm-hmm. no other reason yeah, I, I I think I would have called it uh, like Botany Bay or something like that to myself, but you know. Well, Botany Seeds. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Overall, weird episode. Uh, starts in the writing phase. Actually, this this was uh, written by uh, Carrie Wibber, and was like rewritten several times and was finally made into a teleplay by Gene L. Kuhn, who we've seen show up a few times, and was rewrites by Roddenberry, but then he didn't get credit on it because of some some guild shenanigans and union stuff. Uh, was originally uh, perceived as an episode about a group of space prisoners who were shot into space from Earth and then were going to take over the Enterprise and turn it into a ship of space pirates. Oh, sweet. R and stuff. Yeah, it was, was apparently thought of as too Buck Rogers-y and really dumb. And I think yeah. they actually <laughs> poke fun at this in the episode, which we'll get to. Yes. But yeah, numerous rewrites, uh, all that stuff. It's It's very remembered as an episode, but I imagine that... It's less with how good the episode is and how much of a remembered character Ricardo Montalban as Khan became. Yes. Uh, remembered enough that they made a movie about it. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not up enough of the fandom from this time. I know that Ricardo Montalban was a fairly well-known actor and he became even more well-known as the host of Fantasy Island later on in his career. And I kind of wonder if that's why they brought him back i don't know for sure whether he was like a beloved character that the fans really wanted to see again because he, he doesn't show up again until the movie yes now uh, for those uh, unaware that'd be star trek 2 yes the wrath of khan which was filmed like uh 20 years later like the wrath of khan came out in in uh, 1982 so you know, it's a good this this episode first aired in 1967, so, so a little bit of span of time. Yeah, it was it was quite a ways between this series and the movies. In fact, uh, Star Wars had to happen first. We'll get into that later. But Star Star yes. Wars <laughs> is the reason we have Star Trek movies at all. Excellent. That way we get Star Trek and Star Wars movies now. Hooray! <laughs> uh, so we we already mentioned one guest star, which is Ricardo Montalban as Khan. And he, he, he's and the other major guest star we have is Madeline uh, Rue as Lieutenant Marla McIvers. She was in Murder, she wrote. Yes, she was in quite a few things. She was in like 20 or so movies around this time period, and then a bunch of TV appearances going into like the 1980s and 90s. 
So she she uh, she is a fairly active, uh, fairly accomplished actress. Yes. Too bad she wound up in this. Yeah. <laughs> it happens to a lot of people in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I don't I know we talk about it more at the end of it, but like there are a lot of things to hate about this episode on so many levels. Huh? And it's just it's it's I don't know. This was a hard one for me to actually finish watching because no, it's just I, I, I a I lot of I that kind of reaction. But yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of really cringy things happening in this episode overall. And maybe it was just my mood at the time, but it was a very difficult episode to get through. You know, uh, I didn't have nearly as much difficulty, but uh, I guess maybe some of the subjects that are kind of they're touching upon. Yeah, it's like, what the hell, guys? <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose we should just jump in, and then people will know what on earth we're talking about. We can indeed discuss it more in 20 minutes or so, as we usually do. Yes. So we, we start off in space. That yes, happens. we are in space again, but on, on a ship, obviously. Yes. <laughs> the Enterprise has picked up another unknown ship in deep space. Sweet. Uhura picks up old Earth Morse code from the ship and begins to decode it until Kirk tells her to shut up. Which Kirk, is just rude. Dude, Kirk, we haven't gotten the title sequence. You're already being an ass. She only has one job, and Kirk is like, we got it. Shush. Yeah. Spock identifies the ship as something called a DY-100 class vessel that was built on Earth around the time of the 1990s. Which is cool. the future. <laughs> Did you remember being the, uh, ever uh, being on a DY-100 to get one? Because I don't. No, I remember a lot of space stuff when I was growing up, but not one of these things or any of the other stuff that supposedly happens in the 1990s. Yes, uh, we'll, we'll get into that more as we go through. Yeah, it's silly, but we may as well mention it. Yes, I, I think the term for this is, uh, you know, a, a variant of Z-Rust. The, the, this is the future of this previous decade. Ah, uh, Yes. <laughs> McCoy reports that they are picking up several heartbeats on board, but they are too slow to be human. Spock oh, identifies uh, the ship as the SS Botany Bay, but finds no records of a ship by that name in any historical records from the time period, but says that records from that time are very limited due to it being during Earth's Third World War. Uh, seems like an important plot point. Yes. McCoy clarifies that this was what was known as the Eugenics War, where a few, quote, ambitious scientists attempted to improve the human race through selective breeding. Seems like this is a bad time. Yeah. We don't get any information on this until later, however, as Kirk decides to beam aboard the ship and orders that the ship's historian, Lieutenant MacGyvers, who he does not remember the name of, join them and be useful for a change. Wait, a historian named MacGyver or MacGyvers? Urs, with an S. Urs, he doesn't right, build anything out of paper clips. I was going to say, <laughs> it's like, you just pick the name because obviously, you know, Star Trek saw the future and saw there's going to be a show called MacGyver. Yes, that totally makes some kind of sense, sure. Scotty reports that the Botany Bay seems to be sensing their impending arrival as the life support systems are all coming online. Oh, that's useful. Yes. On board, they find a lot of men and women in some kind of sleeping compartments wearing weird gold meshy clothes. Uh, it, uh, you know, it's a, I think the uh, the term is uh, fishnets. Yeah, but whole bo- like whole body fishnets. I've seen that. But, yeah, but. not not <laughs> in 
Yeah, I've seen it. Not in stores that I usually frequent, but I've seen it. Usually it would be more like a, a goth night club event. But anyway. <laughs> MacGyver's says that this is a sleeper ship where they would place the crew in suspended animation to deal with how long space travel took until the year 2018. Oh, sweet. So we get uh, FTL this year? Yeah, though technically this episode's going to be coming out after New Year's, so oh, we drag. just missed it. Man, if we don't have FTL by the time this episode comes out, um, apologies is my fault. <laughs> yeah, physics. Physicist. Why haven't you been on your job, Mr. Physics? I, I don't know. I, I, because I don't think, you know, you know, strange matter exists, I guess. Oh, okay. One of the pods begins to activate. MacGyver's identifies the occupant as the probable captain because that pod was often set to revive first. Says he looks as if he is from somewhere in northern India and is probably a Sikh. Um, okay. And that the Sikhs were fantastic warriors, apparently. Well, you know, there, you know, there is, uh, you know, maybe something to that sort of notion, especially for someone not super versed in uh, history, because you know, there is, uh, you know, during the whole British occupation of India, there is, uh, you know, uh, several instances where the Sikhs were like really teamed up with the the British, and then like. There was like uh, some people that were going to like, you know, fight them, and the, and the Sikhs were like, "We're going to be kind of like totally badass and win the day, despite being outnumbered." That yeah, all so in the process. We'll we'll go into a little more later. There's two things I want to mention here. One, I think the religious connotations of this are pretty crummy. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, I was doing a little bit of a little bit of research. I'm not as versed in the Sikh religion as I would like to be, but I've done some research. But this is from a completely outside perspective. Uh, and one of the things that I came across is apparently there are a couple of ways to pronounce this. I am going with Sikh, which apparently is an accepted pronunciation. The other way would be Sikh, but I'm, if, I, if I try to switch the one that I'm using, I'm going to get confused. So just know I'm I'm using Sikh, but I recognize that it may or may not be the, the like accepted pronunciation, but I couldn't find whether or not one of them was more commonly used or more accepted than the other. But yeah, I do think that your thing that... that you know, Sikhs as a warrior class sort of religion is probably one of the few things anyone would have known about them at this time and in, in North American history. Yeah, and that's mainly be, you know, because, uh, you know, it's like, oh, we had these interactions with them of this particular nature, and that was mostly through the British, so a sort of second, third-hand knowledge. Sort of yeah, they're also still a, a weirdly unknown religion giving that they are like one of the fourth most populist religion on earth yep <laughs> yeah sort of keep their own thing going i guess yes so uh like us macgyvers has become distracted she's just staring at the man and expositioning at him and go oh look at that muscles well she did she is looking upon ricardo montalban yes what, what do you expect to do i know to do? You know, I if know. I was in that position, I'd tell what I'd be doing. <laughs> it's what, last week we both got distracted by Ricardo Montalban for a good 15 <laughs> minutes at the end of the episode. So, you know, who can blame her? Yes. The mechanism that is waking up Ricardo Montalban begins to malfunction. And Kirk has to break him out of the machine before he dies, but he's not in a good state. The man asks how long he has been sleeping, and Kirk informs him that it has been about 200 years before he passes out and they bring him aboard the Enterprise. Well, oh. 
Kirk and Spock have a discussion about what the Botany Bay could have been doing out here because it is not a ship intended for interstellar travel. Kirk notices the similarity of the name to the prison colony in Australia, but Spock points out that there are certainly easier ways to deal with prisoners than to shoot them into space. So this is where the, uh, the previous script version was kind of bleeding through a little bit. Yes. In sickbay, Kirk is informed that their passenger is probably a eugenically altered human. Oh no, wait. What's going on here? Yeah. yeah. He was a product of selective breeding, apparently. With a stronger heart, better lungs, and the ability to probably lift two men with one hand and possibly mental acuity or some odd thing to match. Yeah, so, so well, this guy looks like he's like maybe in his 30s, maybe even 40s at this point, uh, which would, you know, if he left Earth in the 90s, which means that, uh, you know, he's probably, uh, you know, selectively bred in like the 50s or 60s. Yes. We're going to get into how the timeline for this doesn't seem to work out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> MacGyver's enters and starts staring at the muscles, muscly man who lifts. <laughs> she asks if he's going to recover. <laughs> But Kirk takes her aside and chastises her for being so infatuated with the man. But if she's honest about it, he's going to overlook how she's obviously just too hot for this guy to do her job. Yeah, this sort of interaction is is kind of weird in a certain degree. Because uh, it's sort of like, okay, th- you're only picking up on this with her. Why? Yeah. Now, other people sort of have this sort of weird reaction with, when they run into people kind of all the time on this ship. <laughs> you know it's like wait this this lady that i'm talking to i am infatuated with her but she might be a murderer or maybe her dad is huh but i'm the captain so it doesn't matter as much hmm ah well i guess i don't have to worry about too much yeah but this is a woman being infatuated with a man that's just gonna get her all distracted from ovaries or something kirk 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 yes Ugh. When he and MacGyver's leave, the patient wakes up, does some weird stretching, and grabs a surgical knife. When McCoy comes back, he holds the knife to McCoy's throat, but McCoy is weirdly calm about this and just starts telling him how to kill him most efficiently. I actually kind of like this bit because it's like McCoy is just like, okay, I'm going to be a badass and just sort of like, yeah, just... Are you going to murder me? Or are you going to strike you know, with a knife? Or are you going to strangle me? Come on. This is actually very good characterization for McCoy. It's some of the best mm-hmm. character building we've seen for him thus far. Yes. It's just like, I'm not like, fine. Just, you know, here's how to kill me quick. Do it. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Just, you know, throw, you know, shove that knife into my neck. Do it. Do it. Come on, man. The man lets him go and asks, asks to see the captain. Fine, you get to make demands now, I guess. Sure. When Kirk arrives, the man asks questions about what is going on and what happened to his people. Kirk tells him that they are going to a nearby starbase and that they will revive his crew once they get there. Kirk asks for his name and the man says that it is Khan. Hmm. Well, that seems like a a name that we could quite easily start looking up things about. Yeah, it does. Hmm. In fact, uh, it kind of implies later that they really should be able to identify him quite easily. You'd think so, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Khan refuses to answer any other questions about why they're out there, but does ask if he can look at the ship's technical documents. <laughs> totally normal question. Yes. 
Yeah, sure, yeah, you said you're an engineer. This is fine. Go ahead and read through all our technical documents and learn everything you might need to know about our ship and how yep. to run it and how to do anything with it, really. Come on, <laughs> get started. Back on the bridge, Spock and Kirk are discussing whether Khan is probably the product of a selective breeding program. Spock says that his age is about right somehow, and that in 1993, many of these supermen seized power in 40 nations simultaneously, which sparked off the Third World War. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, basically, these, uh, you know, they, they were either, you know, took control of the government or maybe were promoted there by outside forces. And so a large section of the planet was now under control of these guys. And uh, at some point, uh, I think it's mentioned that uh, Khan ended up, like, you know, controlling, like, a quarter of the planet, too. So Yeah. Kirk says that these were not supermen, they were aggressive and arrogant. And Spock says that it's because superior abilities breed superior ambition. Kirk's just like, well, that's interesting if it's true. It's like, it's fine, yeah, that's the only problem here. <laughs> they just got too ambitious. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> in sickbay, MacGyvers comes in and tries to ask Khan about his past and his ship, but he is much more interested in forcibly and creepily taking her hair down in a very uncomfortable way. It's like, you know, your hair, it's not attractive. And she's like, but I like it like this. It's comfortable. And he's like, oh, I'm going to fiddle with your head here. Don't mind me. Yeah, she just keeps she keeps trying to ask him questions. And he just like grabs her head and starts messing with her hair. Ugh. I think he might be a creeper. You might want to leave this one alone. We cut to Kirk and company all dressed up in a dining room. Kirk says that MacGyver's has recommended that they have a formal dinner to welcome Khan aboard, and McCoy worries that MacGyver's is getting too overwhelmed by her infatuation with Khan because he's all charismatic and she's all interested in the past and she's going to be overwhelmed. Hmm. It does seem to be some degree that there's this you know charismatic attraction she has with him. But uh, yeah, you just to sort of jump there automatically once again because this seems to be happening a lot on this ship, <laughs> and being all like, "Oh, this is terrible." In this case, is, is a little, a little uh, double uh, standard here, guys. Yeah, and I don't know because this next scene is pretty horrible. Khan uh, <laughs> enters MacGyver's quarters and comments on the many paintings she has around the place, and she says that she paints bold men from the past. Khan uncovers one of the unfinished canvases and sees a painting of himself half-finished. Yes. He says that he is honored, but warns MacGyvers that such men take what they want. And then he runs up, he like grabs her and kisses her. Now, this, this was pointed out to me that this is the way that they handle basically every time a man seduces a crew member or a woman on this show. Yeah. The woman always looks terrified. Mm-hmm. That this is not a situation where she looks okay or comfortable in any way, but it is still exhibited to us as if it is some sort of consensual okay thing to be happening. Yes, I am afraid that this guy is going to force himself on me, and then I'm suddenly okay with it when he does. Yeah. Oh. 
Hmm. Which this isn't how like real people work, guys. By the no, way, no. Which also like this is how this was written and directed. It doesn't matter whether or not real people work like this. Like the people who wrote this show and directed this show wanted this to be the the like seductive message that was being sent. That the woman's going to look uncomfortable and afraid and horrified of the situation, but it's okay. Some of this is you know sort of an artifact of how you know romance with strong you know you know male characters of this sort were sort of written at the time but still it's it's really not good guys well the, the reason that they were written this way at the time is because that is the narrative that men wanted mm-hmm. to have to justify their actions in any given situation exactly and so it's not a good excuse it's just sort of the the uh, the, the the reasoning behind it for what there is i guess yeah and then you get into your good old cultural Ouroboros where this is going to influence the people who see it and think that this is the okay actions to take and that's going to let them justify putting it into media more and so on and so on. Yeah, sort of a uh, cascade of uh, bad decisions resulting in bad actions. Yes. They finally get to the dinner and Kirk starts asking Khan about what he's doing in space and Spock asks a few leading questions as well. Khan says that they were out just for the adventure because there was very little left on Earth. Spock comments that there was, you know, the war to end tyranny. Khan responds that maybe it wasn't tyranny but an attempt to unify humanity and that he believes that one ruler would have eventually taken over all of Earth and accomplished so much just like Rome. Hmm... You know, like Roman, it's slavery and, you know, uh, you know, occasionally killing off populations when they didn't, didn't seem to work well, well with the empire, that sort of thing. Yeah, because, you know, people that justify their actions by trying to build another Roman empire never works out badly, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kirk baits Khan by calling him a coward for leaving Earth in a time of need. Khan gets angry and responds that they were trying to offer the world order, and then he realizes what he said and goes, ah, good job, Kirk, and leaves. You found me out. Ho-ho! I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Later, MacGyvers goes to Khan's quarters. He grabs her, she asks him not to, and he throws her to the ground, and then uses some really heavy abuse tactics telling her that she needs to decide if she wants to stay, and then when she does say she wants to stay, he goes, no, now you have to beg me to stay. (laughs) He then grabs her hand, hurting her until she kneels down, and says that he intends to take the ship. She asks him not to make her betray the ship, and he throws her away again, and gets disgusted with her, and after all this great abusive manipulation that they just show on screen like it's normal or something... She agrees to do whatever he wants. If you really love me, as as you, you know, you know you all, you do, you are going to betray everything you know and all your friends and your your captain and your your crewmates and uh, let me take over and do everything I wanted. Yeah. No, but this this is just horrible. Like he keeps he yeah. keeps physically <laughs> assaulting her. Then keeps telling her to make the decision to stay. So now psychologically it has to be like her decision and now it's her fault in in like this stupid abusive justification thing we're getting. Indeed. And then it's just like, well, fine, it's romantic, you know. That's the thing. Like they, they show this legitimately abusive stuff happening. This is like realistic abuse tactics. 
and it's still presented as some sort of romantic consensual relationship. Uh, when it really isn't. Now, I guess the only really saving grace of this particular situation is that it is the bad guy that's doing this. So. Yeah, I mean, for once it is the bad guy. Yes. But we've also seen this from all of the good guys. So are we supposed to think it's bad or not? Yeah, hmm. and we're really not. Mixed we're not here. supposed to think it's bad, and we'll see why in a in a little in a couple scenes here. But they they do not present this as if it is bad in any way. In this entire show, yes, it just sort of happened to be coming from someone who is presented as being bad. Yeah, in the briefing room, Spock has found the historical records on Khan, which you'd think they would have been able to find earlier. <laughs> yep. <laughs> His name is Khan Nunian Sai, and he was the dictator of a quarter of Earth from 1992 to 1996, ruling over the majority of Eurasia. Yeah, so I'm guessing uh, India, China, Southeast Asia, you know, through the Middle East, uh, you know, maybe perhaps even, uh, you know, a little bit of Northern Africa, maybe, you know, Russia, something like that. Some, some, a massive empire, uh, you know, a globe you know, stretching uh, sort of Mongolian, uh, you know, you know, you know, putting them to shame sort of the ill. Scotty says that he always had an admiration for Khan. And Kirk goes on to talk about how much he loves the idea of superhuman dictators. Uh, guys, um, guys, mm-hmm. guys, what are you doing? As Spock points out, they're talking about ruthless dictatorships. Thank you, Spock. <laughs> We're pointing out the obvious. But Kirk and Scotty point out that even though they were horrible dictators who oppressed their people, they didn't kill as many people as they might have done. And that makes it okay. Why? Mm-hmm. Spock mm. hates everything about these dumb humans, but everyone is just like, oh, it's okay. We love dictators. Ha 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 ha. I, I think uh, I, I'm with Spock here. Like... What you, WTF, man? Come on. Mm-hmm. They, the rest they of them are just end, like chuckling it off. <laughs> the end of this scene of everyone laughing about how much they admire horrible dictators. Kirk goes on to confront Khan about all of his new discoveries. Khan says that it's true and that he and his people left Earth for a chance to build their own world. Khan says that even though he is interested in Kirk and his abilities, he is simply an inferior human because humanity has not evolved much in the last 200 years, which is not how evolution works. I really know. Kirk leaves and Khan then forces open his door and knocks out his guards. Yeah. He does this sort of uh, the, the crazy stretch thing again where he's like focusing his strength or something like that. Yeah, or something. It's vaguely racist pseudo-Asian TV junk. Yeah, it's like, uh, this is not quite Tai Chi, but our audience doesn't know anything, so, ah. Yeah. Uh, In the transporter room, MacGyvers is betraying the ship and takes over the controls so she can beam Khan aboard the Botany Bay. Once there, Khan wakes up his crew and tells them that they have a universe to conquer. Hooray, a whole universe that's ours to further taking and also more fishnets. Yes. Now, on the ship, there's... Uh, they show maybe a dozen or so people, and it's kind of roughly half and half male and female. Mm-hmm. Once they get to the briefing room where he's starting to take over the ship just now, all men. I yeah. guess all the ladies went off to do something else? I suppose. Yeah. 
On the bridge, security informs Kirk that Khan has escaped, and now the bridge is under lockdown, and their emergency intruder systems have been turned off. Huh. Well, hopefully it's not that guy we saw, uh, you know, showed all the tech specs to. Yeah. That would, that would have been silly of us. He calls engineering, only to find that Khan has used the technical know-how they gave him to take over the ship and cut off life support to the bridge. Whoops, what fools we were. <laughs> Kirk heroically refuses to surrender, but this just leads to everyone on the bridge passing out. Yeah. Well, there's a little bit with Kirk ordering Spock to try to flood all the uh, decks with neurogas or something like that. Uh, and I just couldn't help but think uh, of um, uh, the game Portal, where basically Kirk's trying to pull a GLaDOS. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly thought that this gas thing is a pretty good idea that they don't replicate another series yeah like what if if we have intruders on board just flood everywhere but the bridge with knockout gas and sort it out later yeah that's not bad you know it's not a it's a it's like a horrible emergency use thing but at least it's a decent idea as opposed to other ways this ship seems to be designed indeed it's like, well, we just need a, a quick off switch for everyone else on the ship, so let's just be able to do that real quick. Back in the briefing room, everyone wakes up except Kirk, who is missing. Khan orders her to turn on the view screen, and when she doesn't, he orders one of his men to move in and grab her and hit her until she does it. He's going to hit her even more, but MacGyver steps in and stops him. Well, at least she's trying to not perpetuate the evil here uh, with the violence. We'll get into that. Uh. <laughs> Khan says that he's made a mistake by suffocating them all together and it would be much better for him if he suffocated them individually and made them all watch I don't know this seems like a bit of cruelty to, to me here but I, mm -hmm. I guess his logic is to you know to follow that he's trying to convince everybody to join up on his side and well for you know, some well, reason yeah so otherwise you're gonna be all I'll die like this it's horrible mm -hmm. um, so here Watch Kirk do it. Yeah, the screen turns on to show Kirk in a pressurization chamber in sick bay in which all the air has almost been depleted. Khan says that he will let Kirk live if they give him the ship and take him to a colony that he can rule over. They all refuse and watch Kirk suffocate. Hmm. Well, I guess uh, we're down to Captain uh, Spock. You're in charge Yay! now. Yay! Spock's going to be in charge now. <laughs> Maybe we can get out of this badness. No more handing over tech manuals or something like that. MacGyvers asks if she has to stay and watch this. Khan is disappointed in her weakness, but tells her she can go anyway. Yeah. As soon as she leaves, they lose the view screen signal, but Khan says Kirk's probably already dead and tells them to take Spock to the pressure chamber. MacGyvers goes to the pressure chamber and knocks out the guard with a hypospray needle. Oh, yeah. So, so she's doing a second heel face turn here. Apparently. She lets Kirk out, but says since she saved Kirk's life, he has to not kill Khan. Well, it's a half, it's a half turn, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um, can, we, can we wound him a lot? Is that acceptable? <laughs> <laughs> the guards enter with Spock, and Kirk distracts them while Spock knocks them out with a neck pinch. So I guess that still works on quote-unquote superhumans. Yes, um... Well, it seems to work on a lot of aliens, too, so uh, I guess it's just sort of one of those weird universal things that most yep. creatures have. It's a universal nerve cluster. Yeah. Spock goes to turn on their anti-intruder mechanism, gassing the entire ship. Ah, so there goes the neurotoxin. Yeah, finally. In the briefing room, the gas pours out of the vents and everyone starts to pass out except for Khan, who runs out of the room. 
And uh, though I missed it on my, you know, my first viewing, uh, you know, did look at, and and Scotty also makes it out, which explains something yes. a little later. Yeah, they both make it out so that Scotty can inform them of what's happening. Spock reports that the gas has been closed off from engineering, so Kirk goes there to get Khan. Scotty reports that they know Khan's in engineering, which gives him enough warning to hide behind the door. And yeah. And it's, it's kind of, you know, because they're, they're making these communications over the, you know, ship-wide broadcasts here. So everyone on the ship can hear this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not only that, this got me because this is exactly this tactic that Kirk used five minutes ago to knock out the other guard. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to hide behind the door and then jump out and get him. And then he runs to the room and goes, where's the guy? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Well, I guess maybe the implication is that, you know, Kirk and Khan are supposed to be sort of on the same level because they're using the exact same tactics. Yeah, we'll get to that, too. <laughs> Ugh. Khan knocks Kirk away, grabs his phaser, and crushes it with his bare hands to show how superior he, he is, I guess. Now, alternatively, their phasers suck. Yeah. The ship is set to overload, but this isn't particularly important. So, you know, the ship's going to blow up, but... Uh, Kirk and Khan have one of those weird Star Trek fights where it's obviously not the actors. Like, really, really obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Kirk grabs some sort of engineering beaten stick that just happens to be in the wall and knocks Khan unconscious with it. It, it kind of looks like it's like a control rod or something like that. Like, you'd turn it and it would operate some sort of mechanism deep in there, but it's... But other than the handle the the one end, it's just sort of a cylinder. Yeah, so. it's just a random beaten <laughs> stick that I don't know why is in there. I was just looking at this, going, "What on earth is this thing?" It it looks like a soap dispenser. It's a giant soap dispenser. <laughs> Kirk, McCoy, Scotty, and Spock are now presiding over a court to sentence Khan with, with the cool little navy bell and everything. Kirk drops all charges. Okie dokie. I yep. guess that gives him an excuse not to kill Khan. Well, everyone thinks he's crazy, but Kirk says it would be a waste to send them to a to a you know re-education colony or whatever they called it. Which why? Yeah. <laughs> but Kirk decides that he can drop Khan off on a nearby unpopulated planet. Khan asks if uh, Kirk has studied Milton, and Kirk goes, aha, I understand. Yes. Mm. And then he tells MacGyvers that she can either go with them or be court-martialed, and she decides to go with them, because apparently she and Khan are just in love. She's, she's gone full fangirl here, I guess. Yeah, and they're all escorted out. Scotty asks what in the world Milton is, and Kirk quotes, it's better to be a ruler in hell than to serve in heaven. So yeah, Spock so says he's gonna be doing that. Spock says they just planted a seed, perhaps in space, and it will be interesting to see what crop grows from it. Yeah, in a hundred years. Yep, that's all. I don't know. This this, this colony of theirs. I, I'm not. I'm not gonna give it six months. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe fifteen years. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't yeah. know this. It's weird. This episode was not as badly made or written as some of the other ones, but it's got some very horrible things happening in it. Yeah, true, true, true. You know, it, yeah, I'd, in fact, I'd say this is maybe one that, you know, you know, of the of the lot we've gone through, probably one of the better ones in total. 
except for that stuff. <laughs> yeah, overall, it's like the dialogue's better written. There's an okay amount of characterization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's filmed a little bit better than some of the other ones, honestly. But the the actual content of the episode is just horrifying on every level. We've already gone over the uh, the kind of rapiness here. Yeah, there's uh, the that, tactics. which I guess I don't want, need to reiterate too much more. But yeah, there's definitely like not only abuse tactics and this like non-consensual, but definitely yes, consensual thing that they always do when they're seducing women on this show. Mm-hmm. But then the ending where she's just like, oh, but we're actually in love and I care about him and I'm going to go live with him on his colony planet. Yeah, uh, lady. Uh, it, it's clear you 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 were kind of you know a, you know a fan girl about uh, history before all this, but you've just gone completely off the deep end here. But like everyone being okay with this, like oh definitely yeah, yeah, she's like... obsessed with the guy. Of course she should go off and live in his weird little rapey colony thing. Uh, well, I guess maybe Kirk's thinking is well maybe I you know if she's you know not put on the planet with them. She might try to come back here and rescue them or something like that. So she, he might be sort of implying like you should probably actually do this, but it's not really given a, a clear context if that's anything remotely close to his mind on that. Yeah, Ugh. I don't know where to start with the stupid eugenics stuff. They are they are way too okay with eugenics in this episode. Yes, <laughs> like the the so, only problem they actually say they have with selective breeding and like the implementation of this quote-unquote superman race is that it they got too ambitious and tried to take over that is the only issue apparently so uh maybe we should uh take a step back and uh you know give a quick rundown of what eugenics actually is is what it is yeah so should i don't know do you want to start in the 1800s um well i guess uh you know that's a good place as any, I guess. So, um, so, yeah, there was this guy called called Francis Galton, who was a horrible racist, but also founded like 90% of the science that we use now. Damn it, Galton. Yeah. He pioneered a lot of like, um, you know, weather prediction things, me- uh, meteorology. He was a pretty well-known statistician. He came up with the bell curve and normal distribution. Basically... Most things that we know now was this this dude had some hand in most of the science and math and whatever that we still use. And it's, you know, back in the day, it was, you know, if you were sort of, uh, you know, competent enough and, uh, you know, inquisitive enough, you could actually sort of dabble in a lot of these different fields and make, you know, substantial uh, uh, contributions. Uh, you know, and uh, like uh, one of the uh, stories that I am, uh, you know, you know, you know, heard back when I was in grad school was the uh, the story of uh, what was it uh, Lord Dalton or something like that or uh, Walton I, I forget the exact uh, guy's name but he was a uh, a guy that was living in the uh, Revolutionary uh, War era in the United St- uh, well in what would become the United States but uh, he was actually working for the British uh, and once well the uh, you know the U S declared independence and was able to fight fight off the British he's like well I'm out of here <laughs> and he went off to uh, live in uh, Germany for a while where he like developed all these sort of uh, uh, things including uh, like you know you know advances in fireplaces and you know you know keeping meals and logistics and designing cities and all this other crazy stuff. 
and just like, well, I got some people that are able to foot the bills so I can like just spend all my time thinking about this stuff. Yeah, this wasn't uncommon among the kind of genteel classes of -hmm. these time periods. Uh, This particular guy, Galton, was actually the half-cousin of Charles Darwin, where he started thinking about Darwin's you know, evolutionary biology and the you know, descent of man sort of things. So what you're saying is that when you, we, we, some, a creature can be more, more fit if these things happen. Hmm. Mm-hmm. He came up with this idea that he called eminence, which was basically his own personal measure of how great a person was, all the great things and deeds that they did. He looked at leaders like Napoleon, who, or Napoleon would have been after this, I think. <laughs> uh, no, Napoleon was uh, early 1800s. Early 1800s. Okay, so he looked at leaders like Napoleon, like Alexander the Great, anybody who basically took over a chunk of the world at any given time. So, he so basically was... he was a big fan of the the great man philosophy of uh, you know interpretation of history. Yeah. And he decided that great men have this thing that he called eminence, which is he decided an inheritable trait Hmm. but also because of his work with statistics he decided that all things will eventually tend towards a statistical norm meaning if you take someone who had eminence and you follow their descendants they become less and less great as the kind of eminence in their bloodline becomes diluted by laissez-faire breeding so what you're saying is that uh, you know you know uh, some sort of positive evidence plus mediocre evidence would lead to kind of mediocre evidence. Yeah. Yes. But I guess the it does beg the question: Where that guy, the first person with that crazy evidence come from? No one knows. Mm. He didn't care. <laughs> Unanswered questions. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. He decided that the best thing to do with this information would be to examine your family tree and use what he coined positive eugenics. Uh, eugenics is a combination of a couple of uh, old w- of words meaning like good and kind of offspring, breeding sort of thing. So like yeah, make yeah, like, good like, children, basically. You know, generations, genes, that sort of things. Yeah. So, so d- genes as in DNA was like still to come. Yeah, they haven't figured that out yet, but some of this work leads to that in a creepy way. Yes. Yeah. So he was a proponent of what's called positive eugenics, which is basically breed with other sophisticated, well-off people because obviously they're the best people and you're going to have good old babies. He wrote a lot about how the lower classes bred earlier and more frequently than the you know better off, educated, obviously superior upper classes. And that's a problem. You know. no, those, those poor people, they, they don't know how to you know wait a few years. They're just horny all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was a horrible dude. And like, uh, you know, their, their, their immorality is just going to you know, be the downfall of humanity. Oh. Mm-hmm. Where we get into the version of eugenics that we know and hate today and what they were using in this episode is from America through the 1910s and 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There was an American eugenics movement kind of spearheaded by this guy named Charles Davenport. Oh, yeah, I remember remember that name. He uh, founded, he, like, took some of these ideas and these, like, stupid kind of social Darwinist-y 
breeding ideas and came up with the eugenics office in America, unfortunately close to where I live in Long Island. Hmm. So so what you're saying is if you get a time machine, just set up what you're at presently, go but and beat this guy up. Yeah. This <laughs> this eugenics office decided to look at all of the negative traits that were being brought in by European immigrants who were coming out of Europe after World War One. So, uh, you know, that whole, uh, it's like, oh, these people we don't know because they speak a different language and are, are obviously f uh, fleeing terrible conditions and are don't have money. Oh, they, they must have something wrong with them to be on our doorstep fleeing destruction yes. and death. Yeah, the... The basic idea here is that, you know, all these other people are coming into the country and we have to be careful because they're going to dilute American greatnessitude. Which hasn't, you know, up until this point, the, you know, people just kind of coming into the U.S. really, really as it was. So why is this suddenly a different guy? Yeah, they just, because there was a slight influx of immigration after World War One. And then these kind of social ideas took place and were, were very paranoid about kind of uh, economic downturns that were happening around the same time. Uh, it was a pretty big, good old racist stew pot for these kind of ideas to come out of. Yeah, so we need an excuse for why everything's terrible. Uh, so we'll blame these people and this, have this uh, you know, spurious reasoning about it. Yeah, the the American eugenics movement uh, led to laws in several states beginning in 1907 and moving all the way up through way too recently. We'll get into in a second. Uh, these laws allowed for the store for the forced sterilization of undesirable people like people who were incarcerated or people with different abilities, uh, anyone that they decided was, you know, an alcoholic or, or too dumb or had some sort of physical abnormality, they decided that these people should be forcibly removed from the gene pool for the good of all. So what you're saying is you're taking away people's you know, you know, rights for uh, body autonom uh, bodily autonomy and, uh, you know, for your own, you know, effectively excuse for things that are happening yes uh this actually only stopped in america in 2014 whoops well it was still legal and not uncommon to sterilize prisoners in california until it was finally banned like five years ago wowzers yeah <laughs> yeah the supreme court actually upheld this practice in the 1920s time at supreme court of the 20s yeah <laughs> Now, these ideas also led to some things that we think of as pretty normal nowadays, including the first American Immigration Act, which was passed in 1924. Before this, there was no particular limit or legality to people moving to America. They would just show up and you're fine. You're here. You're, you can be a citizen, whatever. This put in uh, quotas on how many people from various countries could come into the uh, could come into America. Um, a lot of it was to stem sort of European immigration, and it was also designed to completely shut down immigration from Asia in kind of response to a growing Chinese population in the American West brought in to work on kind of the railroads and westward expansion. So uh, we got, we got, got some workers here. Um, but we, we don't want them to be the only workers. Oh. So, yeah, mm, this is... Mm. Completely born out of racism and really yeah. faulty science. They they had some things that we still use, like IQ tests were made out of this work. 
and the IQ tests were designed in such a way to be hugely biased toward uh, educated people from a European background. And that's why it's always important to, you know, basically laugh at the faces of anyone's like, oh, my IQ test says I'm smart and thus you should respect me. Yes. You know, no, that's a complete BS. And you had a lot of kind of cyclical work like this where they made a biased IQ test and then gave it to the army. And the army found that, you know, educated people of European descent were doing well on the IQ test. And then the guy takes those results and goes, oh, look how my ideas have been validated. Exactly. So uh, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, effectively. And let's just get this out of the way. Like, these scientists at the time were debunking this kind of research because mm -hmm. the research itself was very cyclical and badly done and based on unexamined assumptions about racism. Exactly. But uh, when you're in a, uh, a pattern that you're trying to uh, you know, justify this, you're going to do everything you can to sort of you know, keep those, uh, you know, those uh, you know, outside voices that are trying to basically point out how complete nonsense this is. You want to try to keep them as quiet as possible and keep everyone focused on, oh, my great results here. Oh, look at this. Mm. Now, eugenics was sort of started waning after the 1930s when the science was being more and more called into the question and after behaviorism started to become the dominant form of psychology. Because mm -hmm. if you can alter someone's behaviors based on their environment and various stimulus, then obviously it's not really a genetically predetermined part of their personality. Uh, obviously, the final kind of nail in the coffin of this line of thinking was when the German Nazi movement took these American ideas and implemented them into full force, creating the Holocaust. Yes, well... Well, why, why just sterilize people? We could just murder them instead. Yes. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, maybe this is maybe this is a terrible idea. Yeah, I suppose. Thankfully, this was like isolated to several states in America at this time period, so the United States never was able to go full bore genocide with it, yeah. even though there were people who wanted to. And then, so it's just. The, the ideas that the Nazis used in World War II to justify genocide were directly taken from America in the 1930s. So, uh, sorry to uh, bust, burst anybody's uh, bubble that, uh, you know, about the U.S. being completely innocent and all of that. You know, there are still people on this you know, side of the Atlantic that were all about this and, you know, <laughs> were kind of still advocating it, even when it was, you know, kind of like, mm, maybe this is not such a good idea here before World War II. Yeah, it wasn't even until kind of midway through to after World War II when the things that the Nazis were doing became widely publicized that people even were thought to be outraged by this idea. Yes. <laughs> it went from being a disagreement of opinion, as they say, to, oh, this actually has real-world consequences and they are terrible. Yeah. But, of course, that didn't stop. It was from still, you know, like I said, they still used some of the forced sterilization into 2014. Mm -hmm. And we are still using a version of the immigration laws that were generated through this idea we are still using iq tests we still look at a normalized distribution bell curve to define those iq tests and a lot of uh, school grading systems even though uh, grading on a bell curve has become slightly more unpopular it's still something that's used today we have a massive amount of these 
uh, of these eugenic ideas that are just steeped in really old school racism still deciding how our culture and government function now. And then, and then on top of that, we also got people in the, you know, you know, to this day who are still advocating for these same ideas. And, well, unfortunately, they, uh, you know, they're, you know, getting a little bit more organized the last couple of years. And it's really kind of annoying, you could say. Yeah. And here's the thing. We could probably spend the next 20 minutes going into a bunch of biological and psychological research that's been done on why these ideas couldn't actually function. I think that anyone who's still espousing these ideas is not using a logical system of thinking. Correct. So <laughs> debunking it through scientific research not only is not going to work, but it gives this idea that it's something that can or should be debated scientifically. And I do not really want to do that. And that debate isn't over for decades. <laughs> yeah. Suffice it to say that any kind of thing to do with this is definitely taking away people's bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you have this, you have the right to control what happens with you and to your body so you have a right to have children if you want to you have a right to not have children if you want to and it's completely up to the individuals involved this exactly. should not be something that is mandated by other people mm -hmm. you know you know you put into place and it's like well you're now going to be married to this person and thus this is going to be happening here the uh you know this, this sort of a thing does pop up another science fiction too by the way yes and so the, the main thing that I came across uh, in some things with this is like, what are and who gets to define these positive traits? Exactly. Uh, as I, I couldn't help but think about Babylon 5 on a couple of you know, instances with this exactly. So um, there's a uh, episode of Babylon 5 that first on the, you know, who evaluates this to make things uh, proper? There is an episode in the first season uh, where there is basically a uh, planet was tired of being invaded. So they built the ultimate super weapon that would destroy anything that was not a pure Ikarin. It destroyed the entire population, didn't it? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you know, who, who was, you know, the, who were, who was putting together the, the criteria here. Uh, was just so subjective about it, what they believed should be a pure Akarin, that no one was able to actually uh, meet the standards, and thus they were all destroyed in the process. Uh, and it's you know you know comes comes back to the the point that you know there when you're trying to sort of make this kind of evaluations, there's always going to be some subjective uh, interpretation applied to it, and uh, you and you might think you're being completely objective, but that's you know, when your very existence of people is on the line. You need. It's impossible to be, you know, fully sure of that. And there's all, you know, yeah, you know, evaluate all your biases and to uh, to root them out. So it's one of those situations where maybe it's just better not to play the game at all. Yes. And uh, the other uh, bit of uh, you know, stuff that you know, Babylon Five got reminding me, uh, you know, rem this episode reminded me of Babylon Five for was uh, the Psychor, which is uh, in the universe. There is a uh, you know, the organization that handles all the human telepaths. Uh, and if you are, uh, you know, and they have, you know, rating. So uh, a, a psi level one is weaker than a psi two, or you know, that's usually abbreviated as a P something. Uh, and so P fives, P sixes, P twelves, that sort of thing. And the higher number is, you know, you have more, you know, uh, mental strength and are able to apply your your will or read minds better or whatever. 
And uh, Psychor is very interested in finding people that have high P levels here. And so part of their you know, program is to help encourage marriages between people with high psi ratings in a very eugenic sort of fashion here. And there's a reason that, you know, then that, you know, in the universe, you know, in the show there, that the Psychor are basically coded as Nazis. <laughs> ah, goody. <laughs> You know, they, you know, they 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 wear these black uniforms with boots and gloves, and they have this very arrogant demeanor to them. And it's like, oh, this is, you know, you know, this, this is a matter to us, and we are here to enact our our will on the situation. And you know, the, you know, this is nothing you should concern yourself about. You should just let us do our work. As they're sort of going around as jackbooted thugs, trying to uh, basically, usually it's going after rogue telepaths who don't want anything to do with them. So. Yeah, I think it's like it gets into something that I was interested in talking about with this episode with you know in Babylon 5 they are coded as Nazis which we can use as kind of on-screen shorthand for horrible people. Yes. Uh in this episode they are coded as noble if misguided explorers out to make a new life amongst the stars. Which is a little different. <laughs> yeah you know, it goes from uh you know your thug there to more of a uh, you know this you know almost peaceful explorer almost star trek-esque sort of a vibe here no way hmm. they had this that that scene where everyone is just going aren't fascists great there's a line in there about how like humans have a streak of barbarism in us which they're using it to explain why you might admire someone who is doing these horrible things but they're basically saying that if you if you don't admire a fascist dictator you are less than human i want to call bs on that as well so uh because you know you can you know there's it kind of goes back once again to that idea of the great man philosophy of uh, a view of history that you know, you know, things only change because there are people in place to activate these uh, these changes in the course of history, which I don't believe is true at all. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting that that's complete nonsense. But it is easy shorthand, especially when you're sort of doing a casual look over history of like, okay, here's the important names. I remember those, and thus I am going to, you know, look at those names and what they're they're, they're directly uh, attached to as far as events and accomplishments goes, and say this person is responsible for the modern world and thus i should owe some respect to this person you know f you know for making my current you know day-to-day -day existence possible when that doesn't really follow through at all um but uh, and so you know the, so kind of you know you, you twist that a little bit and it's like oh yeah these these people may have been barbaric but at least they the results of their work was cool right yeah it's this whole discussion was very much just a but the Nazis made the trains run on time argument. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it's just a yeah, but what about all the things to admire about horrible dictatorships? Uh, this one murdered less people, so that's good, right? Mm -hmm. This this uh, made me think of... I guess it might be a little bit unrelated, but there's this sociologist that I like named Alan G. Johnson. And he's he's written a lot about privilege and power. And he, he has this kind of definition of of the 
default mode, like the default group, the, the default superior group in a society. And one of the things that he writes in the definition is that the privileged default group never has to have a conception of themselves. Basically meaning like a minority group that knows they don't have power has to have a perception of themselves as different from the default group. It's, uh, you know, it's like we are a bit isolated. We need to have, you know, create our own identity. Yeah, but the, the default group doesn't have to do that. They are the default. If someone is talking about people, then they're talking about them. Mm -hmm. And this just really reminded me of that for two kind of reasons. Like the, the everyone else in the room at the time is a, a perceived straight white man. Yes. Uh, except Spock, who is the, I mean, even though he's played by straight white man in the context of the show, he's supposed to be non-human. An alien, yeah. yeah. So everyone else sees themselves so much as this kind of default group that they are, they even, they like somewhat see the quote unquote superior eugenic humans as an othered group. Mm -hmm. But not, so much as like an inferior group, like they obviously treat alien societies. Yes. <laughs> so they can't conceive of themselves as different. They see themselves in these dictatorships so much that's like, well, I mean, of course I would love to be a dictator and run things my way. Let's all admire this. Spock, as the othered group in this situation, is the only one who actually has perspective on what's happening goes like you all are admiring dictators you are, are basically you know you know you know through a roundabout way you know, endorsing their behavior and you know actions yeah which this this episode is just so freaking built on endorsing this stuff and they they knew they knew that they were doing something wrong in this episode they knew how effed up this was because mm -hmm. they go out of their way near the beginning to say that this group of eugenic humans is ethnically diverse. Yeah. It's like, well, we don't want to be making this too Nazi-like here. Yeah. So uh, we'll make it so that, you know, that they're you know, not you know, doing this on racial lines. Yes. So they, they go out of their way to say this. They know that they are doing something wrong here and they are trying to backpedal it. But mm -hmm. they do not. They are just, they are way too okay with what is going on. There's never a, maybe we shouldn't control people's breeding. Like, not only that, but this worked. All right. All the descriptions that I read of this episode are using parlance that they introduce much later in the series referring to genetic engineering. Yes. Which would be a direct manipulation of genes, which is something that we're getting into now. Also, probably not particularly workable. But yes, for, for similar, but also some other reasons. Yeah, but that has a slightly higher chance of success than this weird selective breeding thing does. But they never refer to genetic engineering. Genetic engineering was not a thing that they had conceived of in this time period. They are mm -hmm. going off of classical eugenics, which is a controlled breeding of populations for desirable traits. Indeed. And they are presenting it as something that works fine. Works fine and. the... Uh... You know, has done all these. You know, that was had this great, you know, great accomplishment of this this powerful empire, and so is good. 
Yeah, and in in uh. fact, the only reason that it might be bad is that it is going to leave behind the not special people. Yes, and the the not the not special people were up, uh, unhappy about that, so they yeah. rose up against them. Since we're supposed to identify with the like not as special people, I suppose, even though they you aren't. So so one of the things here in in like the stuff I was reading about how they rewrote this episode and creating Khan as a villain figure, he is meant to be someone who is on Kirk's level. Mm-hmm. That's the whole idea of Khan is he's supposed to be the Kirk antagonist, which means yes. that they see Kirk as such a superior being that they literally have to invent a species of of, of ultra humans for him to be equivalent with. So you, you've already created one Uberman. So how do you get someone who can compete with him? Well, just make another one. Yeah. And I suppose, since you mentioned the Ubermensch, we should probably touch on Nisha a bit. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the Ubermensch is, uh, you know, the, an idea that Nietzsche was, uh, you know, the philosopher, uh, you know, is, uh, you know uh, came up with, that basically it was a someone that has, you know, the, you know, ability as well as the force of will to go beyond uh, normal morality, normal rules, and uh, in order to enact their will upon the world. Yeah, but uh, the interesting thing with kind of Nietzsche and his Ubermensch idea was that it's not exactly someone with superior, like, mental and physical abilities the way that we would think of it now. It it's is more of a, you know, more of a, more of a decision type structure. Yeah, it's it's kind of a look at the person that you admire most and imagine how they are a superior person, then strive to meet that ideal. And uh, I'd like to touch on something you know, real quick here. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, mentioned, uh, you know, the sort of difference between, you know, all this stuff and, uh, you know, behavioralism. Uh, and I was sort of thinking during the episode when I was watching that maybe the reason Khan and all the other, you know, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, supermen here were were like as they were trying to take over countries and take over the world was because they had been told from the very beginning that, oh, you are this and thus you are more able and should be in charge. And so, you know, you should you know embrace this philosophy of, you know, taking things for yourself and making the world as you see it should be. Yeah, I was thinking about that a bit during the episode. Like it's it's a little oversimplified psychologically, but yeah. yeah, if you if you raise someone from birth and keep telling them they're better than other people, they're going to believe they're better than other people. Yep. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Now I think we should we should also just clarify when we start talking about Nietzsche and ideas like the Ubermensch and, and other similar things that were later turned into Nazi propaganda. Nietzsche did not actually uh, support any of those ideas. He died before the Nazi movement started, and his sister actually stripped out the ideas that she thought would be supportive of this governmental system and started espousing those. It's it's not his work. It's some it's his sister's interpretation of his work directly changed in order to support the Nazi regime. Yeah, it was a, a corruption of his uh, original intent and pr- uh, purpose there. Yeah, Nietzsche uh, was a was like a really poor, traumatized dude. Yeah, <laughs> who he came up with the "what doesn't kill me makes me stronger" mentality, which he's he, it's just you can read his life, and the poor guy was just like abused by his mother and sisters, which made him 
not like women very much and kind of uh he i think he was kind of sickly and didn't get along with people and spent a lot of his life really kind of afraid and he basically like really really embraced these nihilistic philosophies in like nothing actually matters god is dead like we don't have a replacement for religion in modern society it is the downfall of everything and we have to look to the strong and amoral actions that we can take in order to build a better humanity sort of a in some ways he was cornered and so these you know sort of ideas became very uh you know attractive to him and so he sort of built entire philosophy philosophical framework out of it yeah he was he was like almost always sick and had some sort of wasting disease that i think was fairly unidentified at the time and yeah he he was not living a very good life and a lot of his philosophy seems to be very directly influenced by that it how kind of a way to explain why all these horrible things are happening to me which is pretty understandable psychologically but you know uh you need to understand the context of this when you're looking at someone's life philosophy indeed uh i i will uh you know like to point out something that, that i found was kind of amused by uh when i was you know reading you know reading up on him for this episode uh that Nietzsche when uh, basically asked about uh, uh, anti-Semites, it's like, no, you, know, you should shoot them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, because he, he was just having no, no, uh, nothing to do with, the, you know, this, uh, you know, racial uh, purity uh, BS here. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's like, yeah, that, that's complete nonsense. You know, and when you know, people were like, oh, Germans are strong. He's like, no, I'm full-blooded Polish and I'm awesome. So uh, screw you guys. <laughs> the the freaking, uh, just a, one more thing just with the stupid racial stuff in this episode um this weird line i guess it's never actually confirmed but the line in the beginning where they say khan is probably a sikh like i'm obviously coming from an outside perspective but all the reading i've done all everyone that i've met anything that i've heard about sikh as a religion is very focused on being just kind of the nicest people in the world mm -hmm. with a like huge emphasis on justice restorative justice equality and you know uh, social justice ideals so kind of the inverse of a power mad dictator yes the exact opposite of a power mad dictator and uh, I, i'd also like to point out sort of one of those uh, you know uh, you know you know technical things that uh, don't seeks like have uh, you know general philosophy like you don't shave correct? yeah you don't uh, cut your hair at all yeah and uh, that's you know Khan obviously is well kept on that you know, yeah he definitely definitely shaves yes no so this is like written by people who have no clue who seeks are yeah not to mention they got a Mexican actor to play a North Indian man. I'm uh, uh, reminded a little bit of uh, not quite the exact inverse, but kind of close. Um, you know, this uh, a fellow named uh, Reza Aslan, uh, who's a uh, you know a religious philosopher. I don't remember if I mentioned him on the show yet, but uh, he was talking about uh, in a couple of interviews that uh, when he first came to the U.S., uh, you know, he's Iranian. And this was right around late seventies when there was a lot of you know, you know the whole uh, you know uh, Islamic revolution going on there, and so you know you know when he's growing up in the, you know in the eighties, you know people would ask him like oh where are you from and he'd say I'm Mexican, ah, <laughs> because he didn't want to have to talk about Iran at the time. Makes sense, unfortunate, but makes sense. Yeah. 
and uh, you know you know it's it's not quite one for one but i guess they're trying to do something like that here it's like well we don't got someone from northern india india that we can that we know to hire here so hey ricardo montabon's popular let's get him in here yeah i saw an interview with ricardo montabon about playing Khan. he said they wanted someone who had muscles I mean, he does gothip so yes yep that that was his entire thing yeah. <laughs> that was it. I had I was working out at the time, and they needed someone who had muscles. Yeah, you know, of course they could have maybe you know coded this guy as like you know from South America perhaps. Yeah, yeah except for some, I don't know why they chose this part of India. Apparently, the name is because Jaden Roddenberry had a friend from China with a similar name, and he hoped that by putting this guy's name in his show his friend would reach out to him because they'd lost touch that's a really silly reason to put it you know, <laughs> put the character together like that yes i just so i just uh, I, I it's hard for me to even think about how to talk about how much white supremacy must have just been laissez-faire in the writing and production of this episode because mm-hmm. just being able to present eugenics is something this great they try to take over the ship if they hadn't tried to take over the ship everyone would have thought they were just the best yeah it's like oh yeah these we met these guys once they were pretty cool we uh we we eventually agreed to let them be on a colony and everything was just peachy keen after that and and then we parted away so oh even having tried to kill the crew Mm -hmm. kirk's still like yeah Let's not send them to prison. Let's let them have their chance at a new life that they totally deserve. Cause... Yeah, let's, let's, let's be, be nice to these guys. They seem to swell. Yeah, the, the whole thing is just... Like, eugenics is amazing. It works great. And we should let them go take over a planet just because... Like, look how great these guys are. I love it. It's the best. There's also so there's that thing that you you kind of half mentioned earlier when uh, MacGyver's is like at least trying to prevent them from beating up Ahura. Mm-hmm. This episode about eugenics and about how great eugenics is has the white woman come in to save an African lady from being beat up by a white man. Yeah. Um. So I guess it's good that someone tried to prevent it but still it's yeah a little little white savior pro- they, uh, you know, they are here. actually like this episode about white supremacy they are the meanest to her i have yet seen on this show indeed they tell her to shut up for doing her job at the beginning they beat her up halfway through and she has to get saved by the white lady uh, her, her i hope you like you know get your revenge someday i got my fingers crossed but i'm I'm not not too uh, not not too much expecting it. We were talking about this. I was talking about this with somebody the other day, and I mean, I it's obviously this show was an amazing step forward in representation at the time period because I have seen so many interviews with people saying that like the representation that they had on this show, like was so inspiring and so different and so much better than anything else that was in media at the time that it was just this massive, massive leap forward. Mm -hmm. I guess it's great. I guess it shows how much progress we've actually made 
that this just seems like the most racist shit to me right now. Yep. <laughs> we, we live in a very different time. And that, that's, you know, that's very good, but it also, you know, it's like kind of shocking, you know, you know, looking back, it's like, oh God. Yeah. I mean, obviously I am coming from a very privileged background. I never had to deal directly with racism growing up. So I understand that coming at this as a white guy who grew up in the 90s and saying like, oh, wow, look how racist old TV was is like a, probably like a dumb revelation. But at, at least it shows some level of progress. I'm certainly not saying that we have made sufficient progress, but at least there's at least it's not this anymore, I suppose. Indeed. Well. I don't know how much longer I can talk about eugenics, so it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Woohoo! Yay! Change something subject, please! <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show. I hope you're excited for uh, some, some crazy awards here. Our first award is going to Scotty. It's called the Fanboy Award because he is way too much of a fanboy about this con character. What does he win, Gepwin? Scotty wins one of those flags that you put up in your room and when your friends come over, they see it and get really awkward and leave quickly. Oh, Scotty, you scab. You should probably uh, uh, not display that, actually. Um, um, yes, moving on. <laughs> Uh, second award is the Nietzsche is my homeboy award, which goes to Khan for all his being will to power and being all like, I'm going to force my will on people and stuff. What does he win, Gepwin? Khan wins some actual books by Nietzsche because they're different than that. Oh, uh, I guess maybe he has some reading to do. Well, I guess he's also going to have plenty of time on this uh, Sully Alpha 5 place. You know, all alone in building a new civilization, he might get bored. Our third award is the No Hard Feelings Award, which goes to Kirk for dropping all charges after taking after the people took over his ship and just, you know, doing an exile instead. Because, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. What does he win, Gepwin? Kirk wins. He should have died in Star Trek 2, because this is all his fault and was totally preventable. Oh, yes, that is quite true. So I guess he's going to have his comeuppance at some point, but not where they should be. Oh, that is all our awards for today. I hope our contestants go die in a fire. Thank you for <laughs> joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Woohoo! Yeah! Woo. Oddly enough, at least one of them does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that was a rough one. Yep. <laughs> Next episode doesn't promise to be much better. Hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, the next one uh, involves some sort of war, I think, right? Yeah. Hopefully they're... Maybe they'll take this, like, stance that killing people in war is wrong, but I can't guarantee that that's the stance they're going to take based on how they weren't able to even passively mention that eugenics is wrong. Yeah, if I remember anything about this next one here, um, the, the the main message is a little different, but hmm. Yeah, I guess we'll have to find out when we actually watch. We'll it. have to actually watch it. We are, we are moving, interestingly enough, from famous episode to famous episode, though, which I don't think has often happened in the past. The Indeed. next episode is called "A Taste of Armageddon." What does it taste like? 
It tastes like a computer. So it's a lot. So it's a little on the middle side. Yes. Got it. So as I've, I think I've seen this one a lot more often than any of the others. I may have seen this one two or three times. In fact, I've, I've got a pretty good grasp on what happens in this episode, which very unusual. Like Space Seed, I remembered for Khan, I'd forgotten all of the rapiness. Yeah, same here. In fact, I think I thought like the second half of the episode was like much more of it than it was. Yeah. It was very weirdly slow from what I remembered. The next episode I remember is about war and not making it horrible enough for people's liking. Yes. That we're going to have to find out more about that next week on Watchers of Tomorrow when we take on A Taste of Armageddon. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, everyone on board the Enterprise is killed. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcasts, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>